uh, songs we sang this morning, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. It's one of the, the hymns that um, I have taught both of my children. We sing it uh, probably every week. And uh, one of the things that's so important about hymns is those who wrote the hymn. And it's one of the big travesties of the church putting away music from centuries ago as you lose the story. William Cooper wrote that hymn in 1771. And when you think of a hymn writer, I know that, at least for me, the common conception is their life was great. And they, they were singing to God. They were songmen of the church. And everything must have been rosy in their life. But this just isn't the case. And William Cooper is one of those men who it was not the case that his life was easy. He was in dark and deep, long-lasting depression. At one stint of his life, he spent months staring out a window, incapable of moving. His pastor was John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And he teamed with Newton, Cooper did, to write over 800 hymns for the church. And he wrote them out of his depression. He wrote a lot of poems which are not in print except in his journal and the journal reprints. And they're difficult to read because they're painful to read because he suffered so much. We're not talking about he woke up with a case of the blues. We're talking about a man who believes very staunchly that God sovereignly chooses men and women for salvation. And he wrote, I believe it with all of my heart, and I am not one who has been chosen. But I will not deny the Lord Jesus. For even though I'm not elect, He is the Lord. Now, we may come to worship and say, I've had a bad week. My husband and I got into an argument. My children don't behave the way I think they should. Life isn't fair. I'm struggling. And all those things are real. But when we make the decision that we cannot worship God and His Christ and our Savior based on the way we feel emotionally, mentally, spiritually, or physically, we are denying the beauty and the worth of Christ. And so against that, I say, there are the William Coopers of the world. And you say, why did God let him live this way? He died this way. He died in depression. On his deathbed, he finally grasped that he was a believer. He finally was sure of it. On his deathbed, drawing his last breath, Newton says, he's, he finally said, He is my Lord. He is my Lord. On his deathbed. 
You say, that's not fair. That's torture. That's not nice. It's not kind. And yet I say, thank God for men like William Cooper. Thank God for David Brainerd. Thank God for Martin Luther, who suffered so excruciatingly in his physical pain. Thank God for John Calvin, who with kidney stones that caused him to bleed daily, for weeks on end, stood in the pulpit and preached the Word of God. Thank God for men and women who have suffered and still praised God because they are examples to us. And they are a rebuke to me and to you. How dare we judge God based on our feelings? He's a good God. He's a glorious God. It's a hard time of the year for me now. It's one of my favorite times of the year. If there's not a morning, I don't get up now. I usually leave my house around 5, 6 in the morning. And when I walk outside and the cool air fills my nostrils, I think of what I don't have and what God sovereignly took because He loves me. And my heart grieves. And when I see trees turning colors and football games being played, it mirrors what I was living in real time last year at this time. And so I thank God for men who live much worse and harder lives than I have that I might learn from them to praise God in all seasons of life. We chose one of Cooper's hymns for our funeral for Sophie. And it's very difficult to sing, but I wish we sang it more often. We've sang it a couple of times. I just want to read the words to you. Knowing the background, knowing the man, Cooper. In 1774, he wrote this, based on Isaiah 42:16. I will turn the darkness, God says. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. Based on that verse, he wrote this hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, there stands a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err. And scan His work in vain. Now, we often attribute that to the works of His hands, the creation. But I think what He's saying is, 
You're scanning his work in your life in vain. You think you understand why you're depressed. You think you understand why things are hard. You think you get why you're physically suffering. He says, we scan it in vain. We can't understand it. It's beyond us. The next two lines make the hymn for me. You say, I don't feel like worshiping. It's things aren't going well. You don't understand. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter. And He will make it plain. In other words, as bad as it may be in your life today, I'm not denying that reality. Neither was Cooper. You have no way to judge God because you can't understand Him and neither can I. He's His own interpreter and He will make the darkness light and the rough places smooth because that's who He is. He is a merciful and loving God and thank God for gifts to the church like William Cooper and I mentioned David Brainerd Christian biography should be a part of your life. You should read daily Christian biography. Part of my life is reading a chapter or so a day in somebody's journal or their life or something. People say, biography is just not my gig. I don't get it. It's boring to me. That says a lot about you. And it ain't good. It speaks a lot of arrogance to say, I really don't need to look at the people God's given me in the past as examples. I'd rather read current events. Well, current events, although they're attractive, they're quite depressing. (laughs) And they're unsure. Read biography. It's finished. It's complete. And don't make all your heroes living. Make them dead. As John Piper says, all of his heroes are dead. Mine mostly are. Why? Because the final life, chapter of their life on this earth has been written. Man, you make some people your heroes and then they fail and you got to change heroes. The good thing about the dead guys is they were just like we are. They're sinners, but they're dead. They can't mess it up anymore. They've messed it up for the last time. Read biography. Lots and lots and lots of biography along with your Bible. If you can't read but two things a day, read your Bible and read biography. That's what I would say. Fill your mind with the Word and fill your mind with the saints who've gone before. Thank God for the men and women who've gone before us. Because they give us an evidence which speaks to the truth of Christ. Which is what this message is about. In John chapter 10, as we close our study on John chapter 10, we get evidence from Christ to believe in. Evidence to believe. The world tells us there's no evidence that Jesus is God. You probably heard that. There's a lot of uh, people. Bill Maher just... uh, 
put out, just, just putting out a new movie, as a matter of fact, about religion and about the reason you shouldn't believe. The ingenious thing about Mari is he's funny. Very smart, but very funny. And he's smart enough to know you can't deny that there is a God. Absolutely. What you can do is put doubt in the mind if there is a God. That's the best you can hope for. So he takes that route in his new movie. I haven't seen it. I've seen it reviewed, but I haven't seen it. I don't think it's out yet. I'm not that current on current events, especially in the movie world. Don't ask me about actors, actresses. I know very little about them. But I do know that the world says there's lack of evidence when it comes to Christ and when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to religion. Now, you hear it from men like Bill Maher, and you hear it from men and women you work with and live with and talk to regularly. Lack of evidence. You might hear somebody say, well, he never really claimed to be Jesus, or to be Christ. He couldn't deny he was Jesus, that was his name, but the Christ. And he never claimed to be God. He never really claimed that. You Christians have said that he said that, but that's not what he said. Well, we're going to see today that that's just not true. He did say he was God. He did claim it several times bluntly, and he evidenced it over and over again. They say that the Bible is not a good foundation because they claim that for Christians it's circular reasoning. You've heard that charge? You say, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. And they say, why do you believe it? And you say, because the Bible says so. And they say, why do you believe what the Bible says? Because it's inspired by God. And what do they say? That is circular reasoning. You can't do it. That's out of line. They just throw it out. To which you ought to then say, well, what do you believe in? And they ought to say, they might say various things. We'll just take the most common one. Well, I believe that it's all just random events that are occurring. Well, why do you believe that? Because I've studied in science and I've seen that we just kind of evolved into our... Well, why do you believe in evolution? Well, because of the scientific record. Well, who told you the scientific record is true? Well, because scientists say it's true. Well, that's circular reasoning. What? No, no, it's evidence we can prove. No, it, you can prove it only because they've given you the tools to prove it by, and they being scientists, science is circular reasoning. In that evolutionary trend, it, it is circular reasoning. The reality is we need to give them the answer. Yes, it's circular reasoning, but all of life is not bad when we use circular reasoning. There is a place to say, I believe it because it says so. And just admit it up front. Take their weapon from them. Don't argue with them about it. Just concede. Yes, it's circular reasoning. I believe the Bible because it's God's Word. And I believe it's God's Word because the Word says it is. And over the years it stood to the test of time. And so I believe it. Because they're operating on circular reasoning and we are. Because universal truths can only be known this way. You can't experiment to prove them. Their faith. They're points of faith. There is evidence, internal evidence, to Jesus being God. And we're going to look at some of those today. His words, His actions, and the years of history that have followed. But the world still asks, I want more evidence. 
evidence that you can believe in is given in this passage, chapter 10, verse 30 through 42, irrefutable evidence. And it falls on the heels of this parable about the good shepherd and the sheep. And, and specifically, it follows on the heels of their question, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Right? That's what they asked him as they gathered around him in the portico of Solomon. There in verse 24, tell us plainly, don't keep us in waiting. Are you the Christ? And Jesus said, yes, I'm the Christ. And you don't believe in me because you're not my sheep. And we dealt with that last week. That the fact that he says you don't believe because you're not my sheep is very important. In other words, they weren't sheep who lost their salvation. They weren't potentially saved and then shut the door on salvation. They weren't sheep who didn't believe, therefore they became goats. They were goats. They weren't sheep. And the reason they don't believe is because they aren't sheep. That's important. Because if it's the other way around, you have something to be proud of if you believe in Jesus and you trust Him for your salvation. Because you can say, I figured it out. I believed it. I did something. And so, unlike Paul who says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I don't have anything to boast about. Whatever I boast in, it's in the cross and Christ. Unlike that, you would be able to say, Jesus did 99.9%, but boy am I glad I did one. Point one. Because if I hadn't, I would have been lost. You would be able to say with, with this self-assuring pride that you did something for your salvation when the Bible clearly says you did nothing. Even your faith, even your belief is given to you as a gift so that you may believe. So we have this clear teaching right before he gets to the evidence. You know why it's ordered that way? Because Jesus now turns from focusing on unbelief to gathering the sheep in the crowd. Jesus knows there's those who will believe in him gathered and he wants to give them the evidence to believe in. And he reaps a great harvest. And I want to look at that with you today. The fact that the most one of the most Assuring things to me about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is the fact that it always leads to salvation for those who will believe. Look what it says. And many believed in Him there. And many believed in Him there. You mean, right after He got done talking about sheep and those who are not sheep and belief and the fact that He sovereignly saves that people believe? Yes. Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because there's evidence to believe in. Jesus claims to be Christ. I don't, I don't want to pass that up. He says it plainly. I told you and you do not believe. Verse 30. I and the Father are one. It's a claim of deity. We are one in essence. We are God. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's claiming to be the Christ. And in case we didn't pick up on it, 31 tells us that's exactly what He said 
so we're not confused. John writes editorially. When he said that, they picked up stones to stone him. So when somebody says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, say, well, that's not what the audience that was gathered around him thought. They plainly understood it. This is the fourth time now that they've tried to kill him in the book of John, recorded for us. Because they believe he's blaspheming. They believe he's claiming to be something that he is not. They believe that he's claiming to be God. And you know why they believe that? It's obvious. Because he is making that claim. And he's not apologizing for it. He's not backing up or backing down. You, evidence to believe in, you should believe in Jesus. If you're here today, you should believe in Jesus because... He claims to be God. Plain and simple. Jesus and the Father are one in several ways, and I want to show them to you. First of all, they're one in purpose. Their purpose is the same. Look in verses 27 and 28, up above our passage. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. My Father and I are one in the fact that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life, and nobody can take them away. They're one in purpose. What is their purpose? Their purpose in this instance is to save everyone who believes. So if you're here today, you need to believe in Jesus because He claimed to be God. He's one with God in the purpose of saving people that are sinners like you and me. You say, well, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I would like to believe in that if I just had the evidence. The evidence is here. He claims to be God. Believe in Him. The purpose of His whole life and ministry is that you believe in Him. As God, as the Savior. Jesus and the Father are one in power. They're one in power. That same passage I just read from 27 through 29 says that no one can snatch them out of Christ's hand and nobody can snatch them out of the Father's hand because their power is the same. They are omnipotent. They are more powerful than anything created. They share. They live in the same power. They have the same purpose, the same power. I couldn't give you another P. At least, I'm, I'm not smart enough to do it. Maybe you can come up with one. Be careful, though. Don't, don't mess up just to have another P and write something that's not true. That's why I gave up. They're one in essence. Don't say person. Don't come up to me and say, hey, you could say the P of person. That's not true. That's denying the Trinity. They're not the same person. They're one in essence. Always be biblical even when it's not alliterated. <laughs> same purpose, same power, and they're one in essence. In other words, the substance of who they are is divine. They are 100% God. If you look in the passage... It's clear, I and the Father are one. And you say, well, it sounds like he's saying that they're one person. No, 
Because in the Greek, I told you last week, that word translated one is in the neuter, which means it applies to both of them separately. As persons, yet unified. How can they be unified? In essence. In their substance. In who they are. They're divine. They're God. Jesus claimed to be God. And this whole book of John that we've been studying, just to reiterate this, was written so that you might believe. In John 20, 30 through 31, John says, And many more miraculous signs and wonders were done, which are not in this book, but the things written in this book were, are here, so that you might believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and by believing, have eternal life. The whole purpose of the fourth gospel is that you believe in Jesus as God. It's the whole purpose. And be saved. And because of that purpose in John 20, I was introduced to a new tool for evangelism, which I'm going to share with you guys in the coming weeks. Just announcement in way of uh, preaching a sermon. It's a tool that simply goes through the book of John with some probing questions in four weeks. I think it's great. I think it's, I think it's probably one of the best tools you can use. Why? Because it takes the book of John at word, at its word. John said he wrote this under the inspiration of the Spirit so people would believe. So why wouldn't we use the book of John as our main evangelism tool? That's a... Pretty novel idea, isn't it? The Holy Spirit said, I'm going to write these things down so people will believe. And we said, well, we got to come up with some ways for people to believe. Wait. On script, just take the book and ask questions of the book, and it will give you the answers because there is evidence for the case. Now, we want to get to the evidence. You should believe in Jesus because He did many mighty works. Many works. In verse 32 of the passage, Jesus said, I've shown you many good works, beautiful works, magnificent works, miraculous works instead of good. If you want to insert one of those adjectives, that'd be good. Many good works. For which one of these are you stoning me? He did many works while he was on the earth, which speak to his being God. Let's think about some of them. He had power over nature. I was telling the story this week to Hannah Grace and Noah about calming the storm in the Sea of Galilee. You know what it says at the end of that? And they were amazed because He even had power to speak and control the wind and the waves. He had power over nature. Beautiful. God in Jesus, Jesus as God, controlled nature. And he did it explicitly, outwardly, so you would know that he has. Now, if you have power and authority over something, it speaks to ownership. Who owns the creation but God Himself? So if Jesus could power and control it, He must be God. He not only had power over nature in general, but He had power over food and drink. I like this one. Mainly because I like to eat and drink. He had power over food to take a few fish, just a couple fish and a few loaves, 
and feed, this one always blows people away, about 20,000 people. Because there was 5,000 men. You double that, you get 10,000. The average Hebrew home had probably four or five children in it. It was big. Lots of people. And he fed them from just a little bit of food. I don't get off into all of the ways he might have done that. I just know that he blessed it and he handed it to them and said, give this to the people. Can you imagine the disciples? Sure. <laughs> Whatever you say, Lord. And can you imagine their amazement when they gave the food out and they didn't run out? And so they had lunch. And then they noticed every time we eat, it's replenished. So that they took up 12 baskets left over, shaken down and squashed. I get the picture that they took bites and they pulled back and there was nothing gone. They're chewing on bread and there's nothing missing. Like, huh? I ate that bite. It's what I wish would happen to my banana puddings. Get a scoop out with a spoon. You go back the next day, it's there again. And it's not that way, is it? And I can't do it, can I? I can ask my wife nicely and beg her. She'd make me one, but she can't keep the eternal bowl of pudding in there for me because she has no power over the food which we eat to reproduce it. But Jesus does. And over drink. I like this one. Is that the... Wedding in Cana, feasting with his friends, celebrating the wedding. And the steward says, These people got to go home. We ain't got nothing else for them to drink. It's the end of the party. What are we going to do? And Jesus' mama says, Let's go talk to Jesus. And he says, Okay, well, just fill it up. Fill those cleansing pots up with water. Huh? Jesus, there's foot fungus in that water. I don't know if you know that or not, but that ain't a good thing. <laughs> That'll spread. It's all right. Go ahead. Fill it up. Now dip out of it and take it to the guy who is the head steward so he can drink it. Sounds like the proverbial class joke, doesn't it? Like he's setting the guy up. The steward drinks it and what does he exclaim? You're not like anybody else's I've ever been with to throw a party. Most people give the good wine and then when everybody's well drunk, inebriated, then you give the bad so they don't know the difference. But you've saved the best to last. Jesus has power over food and drink. He is the Lord. He is God. Nobody can turn water into wine, bread from a few loaves into feeding 20,000 except God. He has power of nature over food and drink, over illness. Go to the book of Mark. Mark, more than any other, shows this. Where he just walks through the streets and lays his hands on people and heals them. And speaks to them and they get up and walk. And goes into Jairus' daughter, goes into a, a, a fever which is going to kill her. Much like meningitis or something like that. And, and he just... Says it's gone. It's it's gone. She's gonna be all right. And verse nine, chapter nine, tells us he healed the blind. Remember, and that was evidence enough for them 
Why? Because they said demons can't heal blind people. Some of the magicians that we know can pull funny tricks and cool-looking stunts that can cause people to believe in Satan, but they can't give people eyeballs who don't have eyeballs. It's not possible. He must be God. That was their conclusion at the end of chapter 9. There's evidence that Jesus is the Christ, explicitly given to us in His Word and His deeds. And He not only had power over nature and food and drink and illness, but He had power over death itself. And I don't want to rob my messages on John 11, but if that doesn't convince you, you might be unconvincible. He stepped before a dead man's tomb after four days and said, of him being dead and said, Lazarus, come out. And he did it instantaneously. He is God. There's evidence all over the Bible. Not only that in word, but in His deeds, in His works. Jesus displayed power that could not be replicated by Satan, as I said earlier. Jesus' word and His works match His claim to deity. Verses 37-38, through 38, look what it says. He says, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe Me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe Me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. If you don't believe what I say, believe what I do, Jesus says. Now that is an applicable point to you and to me. I'm going to connect the dot for you. To be Christ-like, you must not only say you believe, you must live a life of belief. If you're going to be Christ-like, you must live what you say you believe. Practically. You have to. Because they can say, yeah, you say you believe, but I see no evidence. They couldn't say that about Jesus. He trapped them. Jesus is a master with words and works. He says, which, which work? You know, they said, we're going to stone you because you said you're one with the Father. That you're blaspheming. Jesus said, wait a minute. Before you throw the stones, what work are y'all stoning me over? Well, no, it's not your good works. Oh, so if I do my Father's works, why are you stoning me? That's what he's saying in verse 37. If I have evidence that what I'm saying is true, if you've seen it with your own eyes, why don't you believe? You don't have to believe what I say. Believe what you see with your own eyes. I am God. Now, on a much smaller scale, that's what you want said of you on the streets of Calhoun County. When your name comes up in the circle of Christian faith, you want people not just to say he talks a good game, but he lives it. Because they can't discredit words and deeds. How do I know they can't? Because James chapter 2 says they can't. You say you believe, I'll show you my belief. James's whole point there is, you say you're Christ-like, I live a life that speaks of Christ-likeness. I give evidence by the way I live, not just by what I say. 
Thousands of people in our world, in our world of Calhoun County, claim Christ. But much fewer, much fewer is the number that live what they say. If you took a poll today, I'm convinced that any restaurant on Sunday afternoon, I, I'm, I'm going to be willing to say that in this location, 90 plus percent are going to say they're Christians. 90 plus. 90 is low. I mean, everybody you go to today in a restaurant and say, "Are you? Do you believe? You believe Jesus is God? Oh yeah, I believe that. Absolutely. So you're a Christian? Yeah." So, sure. But those same people have no evidence of Christ in their life. And so that says their words are false. They're not Christ-like. They're not little Christians. They're not little Christs. To be a little Christ, to be a Christian, your words and your deeds must speak of Him. Long gone should be this teaching of soft and easy believing. In our home group, we've done a lot of talking about this, and there's been one man that's been quoted in every lesson so far. And it's The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know why he's quoted so much? Because he called the German church to attention and said, Don't tell me. You're a Christian because you go to the confessional Lutheran church. If you don't live it, you're not a Christian. Evidence to believe, Jesus gave us His words and His works, and they both say He is God. We're now trapped and hemmed in. Either we're going to deny the evidence that He's given us, or we're going to accept it and be saved. There's no one left without excuse. Jesus' words and works do exactly what John says they will do. Look what it says in verse 42. And many believed in Him there. I mean, their response is remarkable. Look in verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to Bethany. That's where He went. Where John was baptizing at first. And there He remained for probably about three four months. And many came to Him. A Christ-like life is attractive. People want to come and see more about what this Christianity is all about. It's attractive. It makes people thirsty. And they said after they went to see Him, John did no sign, but everything that John said is now true. And many believed in Him there. Evidence to believe in. Word and works and it leads to salvation for all who will believe because there are sheep in the world. But some of you will deny the truth that's been presented in the Word and today in the message because you're not sheep. And so, if you're in the position of denying Him, know what ground you stand on. You have opposed God. You are rebelling against Him, not against me. It is His Word which you trample under your feet and His Son's blood which you walk on. 
and he will not take it lightly. There's a very difficult text, and most of you thought, well, he's just going to skip that. There's a hard text here to understand, and I want to give a quick synopsis. And I skipped 33 and 34, 35 and 36 for a reason. Because it's one of the hardest texts in John to understand. Look what it says. The Jews answered when he said, what work are you going to stone us for? They said, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. For your words. You claim to be God and we're going to stone you because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now you would expect Jesus to say, I'm not a man. I'm God. I'm not only a man, I'm God. But that's not what he says. He quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. Look what he says. It, is it not written in your law, the Old Testament? Psalm 82, verse 6. I said you are gods. Now that text is, is written about the judges of Israel. Men. And you say, wait a minute, how's he proving his point? They said, you're a mere man claiming to be God, so we're going to stone you. And Jesus went to a text that says there were some men who were called God. Jesus, this ain't going to work out real well, but let's keep looking. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now let me tell you what he just did. He used a rabbinic tool. This is how the rabbis taught in Jesus' day. He went from less to more. From small to great. He said, if the scripture, which can't be overturned, dares to call some judges gods because they got the word from God himself. If these small, mere men were called gods, then why would you question me? The one who's from God, that is God, because I call myself God. He went from little to big, small to great, less to more. In other words, he's not putting himself in the category of Psalm 82.6. He's using that to say, if these mere sinful judges can be called gods just because they got the word of God and they gave it to the people, how can I deny the fact that I am God? It's categorically impossible. I'm much greater than them. Much greater than them. I'm in a category to myself. And that's when he follows up with, if I'm not doing the works of my fathers, my father who sent me, then don't believe in me. But if I do the works of my father, then believe me, not because of what I say, which is what you're wanting to stone me for, but because of what I do. In other words, those judges in 82.6 were all sinful men. And though they were called God, to little g, because they had the word of God, which remember, it wasn't written when they received it. They were speaking on God's behalf. And the people called them gods. If they responded that way to mere words from sinful men, how much more should you respond to me who not only speaks, but acts? Not only gives words, but gives works to back up the words. I'm greater than they are. It's a difficult task. It's a difficult text. Uh, it's one that opponents of Jesus being 
who he said he was used to take his deity from him. But he's actually proof of his deity. So I saved it for the end. Because the point I want you to walk away and go home with is there's evidence to believe in. His words and his works prove that he is God. And if you don't believe in what he's saying is you're not my sheep. And the reason you're not my sheep is not because you don't believe. No, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Let's pray. Father, we've come to the end.